culture. 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 Equality, equity, and justice. Mm -hmm. Religion as culture. It's hard to define. Belonging. I would get passed over. Conflict. Conversation. There are conflicts that happen. It's life. Celebrate differences. Compromise. Communication. Culture. Mm -hmm. Culture and belonging. Welcome to the Culture and Belonging podcast from Troy University in the Office of Institutional Research, Planning, and Effectiveness. I'm Rich Leday. And I'm Wendy Broyles. Today we're talking about cultural and ethnic identity. They can be a source of unity. But they can also be a source of conflict. What we want to know is how these identities can help us understand conflicts and be better advocates for inclusion. Our guest today studies ethnic politics and political violence. Dr. Brandon Stewart, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Troy University, has had his research published in journals such as Nationalism and Ethnic Politics and Social Science Quarterly. It really starts with my dissertation. Okay, I study uh, ethnic minority politics. It's one of my in Europe and in, also in Africa. It's one of my main areas of focus, and so I've really been exposed to a lot of diverse areas. You know, I did field work in North Macedonia, which a lot of people that are listening may not know. That's in the Balkans in southeastern Europe, uh, different than the Baltics. <laughs> right? The Baltics <laughs> are Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. This is a very small country. Uh, north of Greece, okay, uh, and it's a very diverse country that experienced a very violent ethnic conflict and insurgency because the largest minority group in North Macedonia just did not feel that the government was representing their interests. Mm. And they took up arms, and, and it wasn't as bad as some of the other conflicts in the Balkans. You know, it certainly wasn't as bad as what happened in Bosnia, but it was very violent, yeah. and it's a reminder of why it's important to be inclusive. Yeah and that, um, that there are consequences to exclusion. And that's the, a little bit about my background. So what got you, what got you there? You know, everybody's got a story about sure. how they ended up with sure. the dissertation. Sure. What, what, was, what compelled you to work in that area? Well, Not just the, the region, mm -hmm. but also like in your, you know, working with your specific concepts and thinking about ethnicity. And sure, sure. Uh, well, it started really, I did, the region started, I did a study abroad mm. when I was at Florida State uh, in Croatia. And we traveled to Bosnia, we traveled around the Balkans. And that was my first real exposure to that region, you know, firsthand. And so I was interested in it. I was interested in the ethnic conflict and how these groups who have, for the most part, with some exceptions, their languages are very similar. Right. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of it's hard to tell the difference between the groups mm. if you just were to meet two random people. Right. You wouldn't be able to say, OK, this person's definitely a Serb. This person's definitely, you know, uh, a Croat or whatever the case may be. It would just be it, very difficult to tell. Uh, and that was interesting to me. OK, these people turned on each other mm. and, and had a very, very violent conflict with each other, despite all their similarities. Let's take let's take a step back a little bit. Sure. And you work with. Culture mm -hmm. is one of the variables mm -hmm. that helps you explain different outcomes. But when we say culture, how are you? What are you thinking about? What? How do you define it? Like, what? What? How do you use culture in your work? Sure. Well, it's a very well. I mean, it's a it's a very multifaceted, difficult concept to define. But mm -hmm. I mean, broadly speaking, I would define culture as the values that people hold, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes those values can be linked to language. Sometimes they can be linked to religion. Sometimes they can be uh, linked to ethnicity, right? Uh, it really 
depends on the context. Mm. But broadly speaking, it's it's the values that people hold. It's their views regarding the economy. It's their views regarding family and children. Uh, it's it's a very complicated concept. And you approach it as your definition is values. So culture is kind of this thing we notice that springs from these other factors like language, ethnicity, religion. I think that adds to the, it demonstrates the complexity, but that nuance really gives us a much better understanding of not just how you view it, but this is, the culture is a, a term that means different things to different people. Yes. Of course. Yes. Yes, most certainly. Yeah, and I, and I do think there is still a, there's a very healthy discussion in the literature about what culture means, yeah. right? Not just in yeah. anthropology, but also in political science mm-hmm. and, and what Rich and I do. So the other half of the title of our show is belonging. Sure. So how would you define that term? Belonging is when, and again, I'm going to stick with ethnic minority politics because that's what I, that's how I conceptualize this. Uh, it's when minority groups feel included. Mm. It is when they feel that the government actually represents their interests and cares genuinely about their interests. Mm-hmm. It's part of, I mean, if you're going to make a minority group's language an official government language, Mm. that's belonging. Yeah. Right. If you're going to make sure that there's universities that are set up specifically uh, that teach in in a language of an ethnic minority group, that's an example of belonging. Yeah. There's concrete steps that governments can take. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. If we're going to stick with the focus on government to make sure that citizens feel like they belong in the country that they're they're from and that they're that they love as much as anyone else does. Well, that places the idea of inclusion in you know, specifically in a conversation about, I would say, public policy yeah. and choices that political regimes make, mm-hmm. you know, and the extent to which, you know, in your case, you study minority groups, ethnic minorities, those groups may be cut off from the political system. They may not have the type of, you know, representative democracy that we have in the United States. And this is, you know, across national discussion now, mm-hmm. right? So we have to think about the choices that governments make. And sometimes those governments are not of the people. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so we got this idea of representation in there. And that really opens up a door when ethnic groups are not included. That, I assume, opens up a door to conflict. That other thing that we try to talk about. So tell us a little bit, even if it's from your work or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe something you're teaching right now, what are some of the, like, how do we get to a point of conflict? Sure. Uh, well, I do think it is, there's a debate in the literature, but I do think that when there's a minority group, especially if they're a large minority group and they have grievances against the government, mm-hmm. whenever they have grievances and they've tried political outlets and their grievances have repeatedly not been addressed. Mm-hmm. This is when we see violence. At least that has been my experience in the cases that I have examined. It's not the first resort. They're not reveling in the use of violence. They're not excited about becoming an insurgent and challenging the government. It's we have these political demands. Mm -hmm. You have consistently ignored them. We don't know what else to do. Again, it's I think the group has to be large enough to instigate violence. They have to be large enough to actually wage a challenge to the government, an armed challenge, that requires manpower. You need people willing to fight. Yeah. yeah. There are other groups that are completely powerless. The Roma around Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. These are people that have very little political representation. There's so much discrimination against them. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're a stateless people. And if you were to ask 
what does it look like to feel like you belong as a Roma? I, I don't know what their answer would be. So while you're talking, like I've got all these other connections I'm trying to make in my head. So you're talking about how in the Balkans there are these different ethnic groups yes. that to an untrained eye would not appear to be different. I'm not a political scientist. I am the representative oddball in the room right now. Um, and so like I'm, I'm just trying to make connections with like what you're talking about and then what like the general public will understand and be able to, to think about because it's a little disconcerting to think about how two, I'm looking at two white men, right, who are different, like not racially different, but you guys have different cultural backgrounds. And, and I don't see you as in conflict. But if, if I were in the Balkans and I saw two men that looked like you, they could be completely different ethnicities, right? And, and different religions and different all the things sure. that matter. And so just trying to figure out how to understand that without having seen it, I think is a little challenging for just the average person. Sure, sure. Help me help me sure. get to where you are. Sure. sure. Well, well, I, well, I do think it's it's important to understand that you, you make a good point that some of these groups are very similar to each other, right? But some sometimes the conflicts that happen between groups that are so similar, that's very, that is very puzzling. But sometimes the groups are very different from each other. The group that took up power in North Macedonia, Albanians. Mm -hmm. Albanian is a completely different language, completely different culture, different religious customs. Um, they're, they're Muslim predominantly, some are Catholic, but they're mostly Muslim, right? Compared to uh, Orthodox Christians that are the majority. Mm -hmm. So there's there are religious differences there, right? In Bosnia, there was a major religious difference between Catholics, uh, Orthodox Christians, and Muslims, mm -hmm. right? So there are differences, yeah. despite some of the similarities, yeah. right? And so, to bring it back to the original point, there was a lot of grievances that led to the violence. Mm -hmm. The fact that there was one group, the Serbs, again, Orthodox Christian, they had dominated politics in the Balkans mm -hmm. under a federation of uh, known as Yugoslavia. Yeah. They were the dominant force. And so other groups felt oppressed. And so you have decades of grievances and people that feel, okay, well now communism's ending, right? This was a communist state. We're our own independent country now. It's our time. What yeah. do we do? Yeah. yeah. What yeah. do we do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who's in charge? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Who's going to hold the majority stake in the parliament mm -hmm. and the legislative body? See... But these kind of questions, these political questions we talk about, yeah. I mean, this has this has consequences. Yeah. Yes. You know, there are choices that governments make. Mm -hmm. You know, the Canadian government chooses to give you instructions in two languages. That's a right. choice. That's right. a policy choice that regimes make. Mm -hmm. But I think, like, what you guys are saying now really takes us back to that point of culture is not just something you, you don't just want to look at Brandon and I, you, you see, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of white guys. It's that nuance that matters. Right. You know, what's mm -hmm. the language difference? What's the like, the differences in religious perspective? Mm -hmm. And now you really start to kind of put together pieces of this mosaic that is culture, and you start to come to a better understanding. But you got to have that willingness to look past physical features or don't mm -hmm. just take it at face value. So to oversimplify, uh, this is an election year, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> so... Democrats and Republicans, they they might look the same mm -hmm. on the surface, but there are 
differences underneath differences in belief, differences in priority, differences in how we think the government should create a budget, you know, like. Sure. Educational attainment. Right. So many aspects of. Religious belief systems, religious behaviors, you know, there's a whole lot that goes into deciding whether or not you're going to flip the R or flip the D. Yeah. 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 Culture. I think what you're getting at is that culture has contributed to the polarization we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, that is that is true. I, I think without getting too much into U.S. politics, because that's not, my, not what I do. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and it's also a, Me a, a minefield. But, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's what I do. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> culture certainly has a role to play, and, and religion in particular, and the role that religion plays in shaping the values that people hold. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also a historical component to this, if you want to you know, talk about the U.S., because we've seen the party system change over time. Yeah. And in part, it's changed because of... Value systems aren't always as static as we might think they might be, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, I, and I'll also say what it means to be, you know, as someone who used to live in California, what it means to be a Republican in California isn't the same as what it means to be a Republican here in the South. Right. You know, same thing, you know, flip the partisanship. It, it's not, it's, you know, we have this national identity here in the American states, but we're also, you know, I live in Alabama right now. I'm an Alabamian. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer... You know, some surfer dude from California, right? <laughs> so that kind of like that regional placement within a country matters as well. Yeah. You know, and we have, well, federalism's not so unique, but we, we have that unique type of system that allows us to have these separate identities, yeah. you know, and I would go so far as to say allegiances even to our state, yeah, not just the federal government. And I don't know the extent to which that is mirrored in the places where you've done field work or if that if that's even comparable. Well, you know? I, I do think you bring up a, a broader point that's very interesting, and it's the fact that there are elements of culture or identity that are constructed. Yeah, mm-hmm. And so exactly. someone who's Albanian in the Balkans is an ethnic Albanian, right? You might be a Kosovar Albanian, you might be from uh, North Macedonia, but you're an Albanian, that's your identity. You come to America and you're European. Mm-hmm. Right. And so or or you're a Muslim or you're there's something else that defines how you're different from other people. And so you still have that your identity, your core identity, but how other people view you is different. Even in my ethnic politics class, one of the people that became my dissertation advisor, Aydin Salehan, who is a fantastic scholar of ethnic politics, he's the, one of the on the first days like, is Texan an ethnic group? Talk about a minefield. Yeah, an hour later, after everyone was angry discussing, you know, debating this, it was I was like, okay, this is this is a very interesting. This is going to be an interesting class because it is the Republic of Texas, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If you ask a Texan, they're a Texan. (laughs) Yeah, well, and even within the state of Alabama, we could talk about Alabama and Auburn fans. We could talk about. You know, have students from Birmingham. What part of Birmingham? Because, you know, it's not just Birmingham. It's a bunch of different neighborhoods and other cities within that region of Birmingham. And so these allegiances, you're right. Like, we had a conversation with um, a lady named Kim Serrano a couple months ago, and she works on a project for belonging, the belonging barometer. They use this tool to measure belonging. And the one of the main things we talked about with Kim was this idea that you might belong in one aspect 
of life, but feel a lack of belonging elsewhere. So there are these just different multifaceted areas of life, the different layers of culture, right, where we can feel different allegiances or lack thereof. Sure, certainly. And I do think people feel sometimes conflicting allegiances, right? Mm -hmm. Your national identity, what country you belong to could be in conflict with your ethnic identity. I mean, I f well, I feel loyal to, to the state or to the government, so to speak, but, you know, to stick with the ball, because I'm an Albanian first, right? First and foremost, that is who I am. That's my wife, my children, the values that we have, the, you know, the religion we belong to. I do appreciate the government, right? But that's, that's not who I am. And I do think that is a common, a common thing, especially in areas where, that have had conflict. Right. When you've had conflict, we tend to see people much more keenly in tune with their identity because people have literally taken up arms to, to try to benefit that group. And I think that, especially if you, if you travel to Bosnia or some of the other areas in the Balkans that have had very serious conflict, tens of thousands of people died. People don't realize the siege of Sarajevo was the longest siege in the history of modern warfare. 44 months, Wow. the Serbs, Orthodox Christians, held the Bosnian Muslim population uh, under siege in the capital of Bosnia. You couldn't get out of the house. They had to smuggle food in, uh, in a tunnel under the airport. Uh, it was absolutely brutal, right? And to, to this day, if you go there, I mean, it, the damage is still so fresh. You walk around Sarajevo and they have little spots of red paint. Mm. People were sniped out by the Serbs. Just so people remember when you're walking around, someone died there. So it's very fresh. It's very raw. You know, it's old news in the media because it happened in the 90s. Yeah. But it's not old news to the people that live there. And they're very in tune with their identity and there's still a lot of tension in some countries in the region. Well, and at what point does it take for an individual? Like how, how many, mm -hmm. how many like slights to your identity? You know, like how, how, how long can you deal with an existential crisis before you literally take up weapons against some of your own people? Mm -hmm. You know, people in your own nation state. Like that's, that's a process. That doesn't just happen overnight, you know, right. and that might happen over generations. And again, that's why society has a role to play, but governments make choices mm -hmm. that can either exacerbate those tensions or alleviate them. Okay. So along those lines, this episode will be released in February, which is Black History Month. I, I had a question that might help kind of steer our conversation that way. Okay. Let me just give it a shot. Because I wanted to ask you, Brandon... Given the types of conflict that you've observed in your field work uh, and even some of your other studies, how do we achieve compromise or cooperation in the context of our cultural differences? You know, I mean, it's Black History Month. It literally took, you know, acts of Congress and Supreme Court decisions. And we're still I will I'll go out on a limb here and say we're, we're still not there. Mm -hmm. Sure. We're still not there in America. We're still at a point in American history where we can say we've alleviated racial tensions between black and white Americans. Sure. Right. So how do we get to that point? Like, is there a model of success? Is there a way that we can kind of conceptualize this so that even in our own lives, like we're bridging the gap between cultures and not like. Instead of just bonding with our own people, you know. Yeah, we sure. don't want to build walls. We want to build bridges. Yeah. Well, I, I do think it's accommodation is tough, and it, we know this from 
some of the you know previous research that's been done. It's called the hierarchy maintenance perspective, right? Whenever you elevate the status of a minority group, some in the majority groups see that as a threat to their that's right. status. Mm. That's right. And so that is a big challenge to overcome. And I think that is one of the biggest barriers that has been faced in the countries where I have done research, is that any sort of accommodation is seen as a threat to other groups mm-hmm. that have been in a dominant position. Mm-hmm. If a group fears that they're going to lose their dominant position, that group may use violence against a minority group. And so you're, it's a very difficult thing. How much accommodation is enough to recognize cultural difference without provoking this backlash. If I had an answer for you, I would, <laughs> I don't think they've done it in the Balkans. I think of Bosnia, Bosnia is a powder keg that's about to explode mm-hmm. um, into another civil war. Hopefully not, hopefully um, the predictions are wrong about that. But part of it is because each group feels threatened by the other because of efforts to accommodate. And so I'm not as, I, I wish I was more optimistic about some of these areas, but it's tough. Sorry to. So, you, so your beauty pageant answer would not be world peace. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, so, uh, and this is, I think this is, this is fascinating stuff because I've, I've seen this also in some of, you know, I did field work in Afghanistan. And one thing we were working on was improving the condition of women in society. And, we had to be, and, I, and I've written on this um, from an ethical perspective, and one thing we had to be careful of, or we should have been more careful of, is the idea of empowerment. In the case that I'm talking about, like women in Afghanistan, are they spend most of their lives behind the walls of a village cluster. And the idea that we as a Western country would be empowering women, well, we need to check the use of that term. Yeah. Because that term empowerment, to some people, to some cultures, and some languages, you're only empowered at the expense of someone else, mm. right? So it's maybe even the way we frame our, in my case, military operations for female empowerment, you're really giving off the perception other people are seeing what you're doing as taking away their, yeah, like their liberties mass. or their rights. Mm-hmm. And I think even in advanced industrialized democracies like the United States, I think we see the same thing. So I'm wondering, maybe this is just, maybe this is just human behavior. This is just who we are as humans. But I'll go back to something I've said in several other shows. You, you have to want. Mm-hmm. You have to want it. You have to want to understand the other culture. You have to want to understand why women need a place in society in Afghanistan. Sure. You know that they currently don't have. But if you're going to engage in programs or initiatives to try to improve the state of a minority class, you got to be careful about how that's perceived Mm -hmm. because you might actually make more problems than you're solving. And I do think there are are times where, at least based on some of the research that exists, assimilation does work. So one thing that I do think is important uh, to understand, despite the fact that there is this hierarchy maintenance perspective, right, where majority groups feel threatened, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes assimilation can promote a backlash, right? There are instances, particularly in Africa, where um, militaries have been integrated following ethnic conflicts. And this has been proven to reduce prejudice. And so I think there are instances where assimilation, especially if there's a collective uh, mindset behind the institution where the integration and assimilation is happening, 
I think this can be a very uh, important tool to reduce intercultural conflict. It's a state institution, and it mm -hmm. kind of gives people a shared identity. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone who's in the military, you go through basic training, and basic training is in part designed to you strip away yourself, mm -hmm. and now you're part of a team. Mm -hmm. You know, and I would as you're as you're talking about this, I, I'm just I'm reminded we had to integrate our own military, you know, mm -hmm. and that wasn't done until after World War II, right? Mm -hmm. And I believe it was Truman who gave the order, and it's not like the problem was solved overnight, no. right? Sure. Um, but I'll, I'll say I was in a majority black unit in the 90s, but that's only because that's who seemed to be randomly selected to be in first of the 23rd Infantry in Fort Lewis, right? Mm -hmm. But I look around me and I'm like, this would not have been the case pre-World War II and World War, even mm -hmm. during World War II, mm -hmm. you know? So, and I really like it when we can use ourselves as the example because it's a good, it's a good tool. This is history we all should know anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had our own problems. It is Black History Month. Yeah. We're still not there as a society. So it's like Black Lives Matter and then somebody wants to say, well, all lives matter. And then we have to say, well, if all lives matter, then Black Lives Matter. And now we're... We're caught up in our political and social conflicts again instead of actually making real progress in society, progress towards acceptance, I certainly, would say. Certainly. And I, and I do think, uh, especially in the spirit of, of Black History Month, I would say that some of the issues that we face in this country, some of the racial tensions that exist and some of the concerns that uh, minority groups have regarding policing in this country, white Americans do need to be advocates. Mm -hmm. And as Rich said, there's a lot more progress to make. Yeah. How are yeah. we teaching our kids mm -hmm. to act? It's good stuff. Is this a good time to let Dr. Stewart have his teaching moment? I think so. All right. Brandon, if an audience member only takes away one thing from this conversation, what would you want that thing to be? This is your teaching moment. I would want them to know that there are serious consequences to exclusion mm. and that they need to be an advocate if they see exclusion. Be an advocate. That's simple, but strong. Mm -hmm. I like it. Thank you. Absolutely. Our guest for this episode of Culture and Belonging has been Dr. Brandon Stewart, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Troy University. We hope that you will subscribe to the Culture and Belonging podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And get involved by tweeting us at BelongingPod. Give us your ideas on what cultural topics we should cover next. Your idea might just end up on the show. Culture and Belonging is produced by Troy University in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. So until next time, I'm Wendy Broyles. And I'm Rich Lede, And this is Culture and Belonging. <laughs>